I'm pushing the button. It is it is loading. Give it one second. And we are live. Welcome, everybody. And sorry for the technical difficulties there, um, but we are live and we are going to be live every week here. So make sure you guys subscribe and uh, we're going to be answering your questions from the Industry 4.0 Community Discord server. We've got eight to 10 questions lined up for you guys. And I'm actually going to go through after and put timestamps to the individual questions down below. And uh, we have Walker Reynolds here to answer your questions. Thank you, everybody. What's up, gang? Happy New Year. Holidays are over. Uh, hey, Zach, do me a favor. Uh, let everybody in Discord know. I just said that we're live. But All right, sounds make, good. Yep, I'll make sure the know. link is sent there. Um, okay, cool. I hope everyone had a... Um, you know, a, uh, an amazing safe new year's. Um, I'm, you'll notice my background's different. I'm in upstate New York, um, the land of snow, which sucks. I actually took a picture to, I was going to show you guys like, why is it? I don't ever come here in the winter time. This is why, but, um, I had to come up and do some work up here. So, um, Today, I've got a long list of questions to go through. I think 10, 12 questions or so. And we're going to go into the, we'll go into the Discord, but I, I added everything into uh, a OneNote, which we'll go over here in a second. Um, again, I hope everyone has uh, had a, a safe and happy uh, holiday season. Everyone had an awesome new year. Um, I, for one, am just now getting back to work. Um, I, I mean, I did work over the holiday, but I... Um, yeah, I got to do end of year for all the companies and that takes forever. So, uh, all that stuff's done. So we're going to do some, start with some updates. Um, so I'm going to be doing, I'm leading, I'm actually leading, uh, we didn't announce this to anybody. We didn't let anybody know primarily because it's nobody can join it other than the students that we're doing this for. But, um, we were asked to, uh, lead a symposium, do a symposium on ERP and MES for uh, Miami University in Ohio, Miami of Ohio, uh, tomorrow. That's uh, like a two and a half hour session, I think. It's for their systems automation springboard to internships. So I'm gonna be doing a 5,000 and 10,000 foot view overview of ERP and MES for um, these, these are all engineers who are gonna co-op and intern. Um, back when I worked in automotive, when I was an engineer in the automotive industry, I got a group of two or three new interns every six months. And one of the things I always thought was really weird about that was like how the, you know, university programs do not teach you to do industrial automation. They don't teach you, you know, there's manufacturing engineering programs that really teach you like the Toyota model. Right. But they don't really teach you how to do industrial automation. You learn all of that when you get to the, the plant floor. I was thinking about most of the co-ops that I had work for me, uh, which was maybe like a dozen folks, give or take, maybe, maybe up to 20, but I can only think of two co-ops I ever worked with that I was like, oh, this guy's going to make it, um, in industrial automation. And one of the guys works for Raytheon now. And he, I mean, he was one of the guy, he just jumped out, you know, his, his name was Austin. I don't want to say his last name just cause I didn't get permission to, but you know, one of the most gifted engineers I ever worked with, he picked up everything like, and when I was doing the corporate or the enterprise class SCADA system for that manufacturing facility, um, 
the, uh, he worked with me on it and he was the first co-op I ever worked with that like actually could do something more than carry like a clipboard. So, and you know, um, so one of the interesting things and part of the reason we're doing this symposium, part of the reason I agreed to teach the class was co-ops who are in engineering programs, manufacturing engineering programs, when they go and do their internship at a manufacturing facility, um, what I, one of the things that really stands out is just how little they know basically nothing about manufacturing. Number one, um, they know even less about engineering by the time they get to you, you're like, man, you don't even know the engineering life cycle. It's really universities really do our students a massive disservice when it comes to industrial automation and in manufacturing specifically, there's a huge disconnect between what you learn in university and what actually happens on the plant floor. Industry 4.0 is in, in digital transformation is actually the solution to that problem. So I'm going to be present, I'm going to be teaching that class tomorrow. Um, we have asked, we've requested permission from the university to get a copy of the session. I think they're going to let us have a copy of the session. And if they do that, then um, we will share it to the YouTube channel. So we will share it to everyone if, assuming the university allows us to keep keep a copy of at least when I'm teaching, um, which will be a two and a half hour session. Uh, a couple of cool announcements. Discord is over 800 users. I've got this down here, I think. Yay, Zach did an announcement on LinkedIn. Um, but we're over 800 active users on Discord, which is awesome. Uh, Frameworks University, this is a big announcement. So we've been, as you guys know, we've been working with Tatsoft. We're developing Frameworks University, which is Factory Studio 9.1. Again, you know, framework, Not the big difference between Factory Studio version eight and the older versions and version nine and forward is version nine is built within this, uh, this platform called Frameworks. Um, and um, it's it, it really it doesn't change the way factory studio operates, but it, it's a branding thing. So you're, you're going to hear us interchangeably using factory studio and frameworks. Um, they have asked us to push back the release of the university to Jan Well, actually they asked us to push it back two weeks. Tatsoft did, but we we're actually going to push it back one week and then that'll give them a week. They're making a couple of changes that, and they want to make sure that when people start doing the practical work, um, this is specifically centered around Sparkplug B, uh, Sparkplug B uh, to um, tags in um, Factory Studio. Uh, there's an update they want to push before we start that. So we're going to let them push that, push the update before we launch the university. Okay. So because of that, right now we have 48 people in step one, the members of the federation. Um, eight people had complete, have completed their training and are waiting for the practical. I have an announcement on the practical too. And, uh, I think how is Vaughn, as of yesterday, how many people had asked to move to the second group? Uh, as of yesterday, we have 12. So there are 12 people of the 48 that have asked to move to the second group. So they're going to be in the Vulcan group and they'll complete step one with the second group. Um, and that leaves, uh, so that's, uh, 40, uh, 28. Uh, yeah. So there are 28 people who are actively still trying to complete the training before they can even do the practical. This actually will give those people an another week to complete. And it's going to give everyone who's going to do the practical another week oh, to get it completed. So I just did a, I just did a check and we have over 450 people registered for frameworks university. 
launch event. Awesome. Sweet. So I, I, I know that it's a huge, you know, everyone's really super excited about it. And, um, I think everyone's gonna be very impressed. Um, you know, I mean, we're really building the university exactly the way that it should be. And one, one of the things I wanted to stress, we were talking about this, we had a call last night, myself Vaughn, and, and I don't remember if Zach was on the call, but as I was finishing my drive here, you know, one of the things that's always frustrated me in automation is how certifications and training in industrial automation has, they've always been treated as participation awards. Um, I have gone to many, 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 many trainings. And I would say the vast majority of them are just trash. You know, 90% of them aren't worth anything. And when I saw what my employer paid, you know, $2,500 for me to go take this class that I could have completed myself in four hours, if you just gave me the damn book, you know what I mean? Like, um, I have never been impressed with those types of courses. Inductive university from inductive automation uh, is not perfect. Let me start by saying it's not perfect, it, but it is it, compared to what else is available out there from the OEMs themselves about training for about their products. It's the best of it's, it's the best of the best. They, they, you know, inductive automation took a huge step in the industry by creating the university and making all of that available for free online, right? Frameworks University is really is modeled. We took basically what we've done is we've taken the things we really like about inductive university. We took the things we, we keep the things we like, we got rid of all the things we hate and we added in the things that we think are missing. So one of the big ones is listen, you know, if you, if you get certified in framework in frameworks university, if you complete it, anyone who sees that certification will be able to rest assured, you know, how to work in that platform and you are not just a beginner. Okay. That, that piece of paper is going to mean something that also means that not all of you are going to complete it. Okay. When we, when I look at mentorship right now, when, uh, you know, we have 48 people who went into mentorship, only eight people have completed the training. I am totally fine with that. <laughs> I mean, that means I've got eight people who I know, you know, I know I am totally fine with eight of 48. When you go to, when you go to regular industrial, you know, training for industrial automation platforms, and there are 12 people in the room, all 12 of them get a certificate at the end of the, the week, no matter how, what they did, that guy, they could have been working the entire time falling asleep. They could have, they could know nothing about the platform when they walk out and they got a piece of paper that says they do. That is not the case with, uh, the training that we're offering to the community. And it's definitely not the case with frameworks university. You will, that piece of paper is going to mean something. And I think that the, the, or that credential is going to mean something. I don't even know if it's going to be a piece of paper. I think it's just, but, um, you, people who see that you have that credential are going to know you're made of something. I mean, even if you look at people who are, ignition gold certified, right? I mean, I, I have worked on many projects with engineers who were gold certified. Um, that gold certification doesn't mean anything. It really, it really does. I mean, it, it, I don't want to diminish. If you have your gold certification, I'm not telling you that it, you know, it, it, you know, you wasted your time. It's important. It's a hoop you got to jump through. What I'm saying is, is that from a from a, from a lead engineer perspective, from an architectural perspective, I cannot use the fact that you are gold certified in ignition as my sole benchmark 
for determining whether or not you are right for this project, right? I can't do that. That is the approach that we've taken with all, all of our training, with Digital Mastermind, with mentorship, and now with Frameworks University. We, when we say you're done, we want to we want to say we want to be able to say we know that this person can work on any of the types of projects that you're going to see in digital transformation, and and they're going to be in the upper echelon. They're going to be in the top third of all the people available out there. Some people are going to be in the top. 10%, top 5%, okay? All right, uh, step one and two announcements. So the this follows up on the frameworks. We're gonna push out, we're gonna still have our, our mentorship meeting on January 14th, but we are gonna push out the, the start, the official start um, of step, step one for the Vulcan group, the second group, and step two for the first group, the Federation, one week. Everyone's gonna get an extra week because of the frameworks university thing. And now I don't feel so bad about not getting the practical out yet. Um, I, you know, I do apologize. The holidays have screwed everything up. End of year. Uh, uh, the good news is all of the edits are done. There were 11 edits that came back, I think last week, Tuesday, something like that. All those edits are done. All the copies been approved. So now we can get it in people's hands. Um, another announcement, we're working on an enterprise mentorship program. What does that mean right now? Anybody who joins mentorship, there's just like a, there's basically two options, like paying by the month, you know, as an individual and paying um, for the whole year, right? You know, one year and you get a, it's obviously a better price if you pay for the year. We don't want to charge for any of this stuff. We charge for it because our board makes us, but you'll notice our pricing is really, really low, right? It's very, very inexpensive. The idea is, you know, we're really using like commercial pricing as opposed to business to business industrial pricing, right? And we want to keep doing that. So to become even more competitive and get more people involved, we're working on enterprise mentorship pricing, which is basically if you, you know, if you're an integrator, um, if you are an end user and you want to put many multiple people through mentorship and you just want to, you know, Hey, our company has an account and, and, and all of our people go through mentorship and it doesn't, you know, we're going to have, we're going to have that pricing available where the, the bill is paid by just the employer and everybody who works for you, anybody who's got an email address in your domain is going to be, they're going to be able to take the training and we're working on that now so that we can, and that'll be uh you know, mastermind or a mentorship step one, step two, all that, you know, all that stuff. Uh, a couple of things uh, we're going to be putting out signups for beta testers for the UNS, UNS gateway. Um, expect to have this, uh, out by the end of the month. So we'll have the, the signup sheet out, uh, actually before now, but we're going to start beta testing end of the month. And then same thing for our MES 4.0 product. Again, anybody who's interested in beta testing the solutions, we're, we're going to put together a beta testing team. Uh, there's a little questionnaire you have to fill out. So you'll, you'll have to have some basic technical minimum technical requirements in order for you to be on the beta team, because we're looking for technical feedback and, um, one of the things I'd really like is if somebody is a UX developer, um, or someone specializes in user experience, I'd really like to have a, a third party, you know, somebody who is a big UX person, um, be a part of the beta team to give us the feedback in terms of workflow and that kind of stuff. A couple, I want to do some shout outs. So Denton Hess, um, my man, um, he's, I've got a couple of messages I still need to answer for him, but, um, 
I wanted to say thanks to uh, Denton um, for, you know, he, you know, Denton's really active in the community. Um, and he, he brought up some, he, he highlighted some really good resources available. One of the things you guys are going to need to do in the step one um, practical is you're going to have to create a, a separate Python package that's going to run that you're going to call from ignition. So like within the ignition scripting playground, you'll have to have the ability to import from that package, some library, right. Um, or from the library, some package, and we are not going to tell you how to do it. This is something where we want the community to figure out how to do it. Now, anybody who's a, you know, a advanced Python developer is going to know how to do it uh, right out of the box, but we're assuming most people are learning their intermediate Python skills during uh, mentorship. So our whole goal is to get the community to work together, to figure out how to do it together. And, you know, Denton and John Sindrich led the, uh, led the mission there. So I wanted to give a, a shout out to, uh, Denton and John Sindrich, uh, John, John Sindrich, by the way, you know, it's, it's impressive cause he's a quality guy. Like he's a, he's a quality guy who has, who's moved to digital transformation and, that's actually really powerful. That's a, that's actually will be, he'll become an incredibly powerful resource within the community for sure. But, you know, whereas Denton is a guy, I, you know, based on my conversations with him, I don't know his background, but going through his, you know, he's a technical guy. He's a guy who's been building solutions. Clearly John is, is more, you know, John is, he's relatively new to building solutions, right? So especially on the digital transformation side. So outside of quality, um, so they, they, they're a perfect example in terms of, uh, you know, helping to lead study groups and all that kind of stuff within the community. I wanted to make sure I give a shout out and then I want to give a shout out to all the new mentees, a uh, dozen in the last week, right? Yeah. Can I do a quick, quick screen share real quick? Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead, please. All right. Um, yeah, I cannot. Okay. There we go. I want to share this post because many of you guys liked and shared this post. I actually, this post blew me away. Uh, but I told Walker this, this post right here confirms to me that we're working on a mission that is bigger than just ourselves. It's, it is the industry 4.0 movement, but as you can see here, 25,000 people viewed this post, which is basically, I was looking for five men, five women in my LinkedIn network to join the industry 4.0 mentorship program. And I here explain what it is It's a type 4.0. If you're ready to join, here's a quick little LinkedIn lesson for you. This little engagement hack is how this post got so much reach. And as you see, I've been responding to your guys' messages every day, uh, dozens, you know, I mean, it, it goes on hundreds of comments. People have been, and yeah, so I, wanna, I just I wanna, wanna say thank you. I wanna, I wanna say thanks too. And, 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 but I wanna point something out here. And, you know, I had a, I had a conversation with an executive from a, a large automation company last week. Um, you know, one of the big players. And, um, he's one of the few executives that gets it. And, you know, part of the reason I have so much inside knowledge of these companies is there are a lot of people within these companies that have befriended me, you know, so they're, you know, I'm, they're giving me, you know, Hey, I've, we've been trying to do X, Y, and Z. And, you know, we get pushback from this product group or we get pushback from this product group or whatever. And, um, and, and, you know, one of the things about industrial automation is that industrial automation is a very small community. It really is. Even though there's like a million people who do it all over the globe, it's a small community. 
you know, like the, the elite people, the people who have done like the, have done some really, you know, awesome projects and have really, you know, moved things forward. That's a small group. Right. And, and you pretty much know all those people and the people who lead those company, you know, lead the automation companies, it's a small group and you know, those people, but I was having this conversation with this executive last week and he was saying, you know, you know, what you guys are doing with the industry 4.0 discord server, what you guys are doing with your digital media, you know, that is stuff that us and our competitors, you know, so this guy works for one of the big four. Okay. He said, that's, that's, um, that's stuff that we've been trying to do for a decade. And, and he said, you know, and there's no one here who understands why it works with what you guys are doing and it doesn't work when we do it. And I said, you have to be kidding me. I mean, like you seriously have got to be joking me that you guys don't actually know what's wrong with your content, right? I can tell you this, of all the people who do content, there's a lot of people out there who do content I really enjoy. But of all the people who do content in the industrial automation space, the, the people I enjoy the most, and even though I, don't, I wouldn't do the content the way they do it, um, the people I enjoy the most are real pars. And the reason it's real parts, those are the Dutch guys, right? They're the they're the Dutch Rotter, guys, right? They're out of Rotterdam. Right. Yeah. Okay. So they I like their content the most because their content is has the broadest appeal. And and all, one of our whole goals has always been with our content when we were doing out when we're doing education and outreach, we do not we're not trying to speak to one segment of the group of the audience. We are trying to speak to the entire audience. We want to have, that's why you'll notice we never get super, super, super technical. And if we do, we, we do a quick dive and we get out fast so that we don't lose the audience who doesn't understand all the deep technical details. Right. But one of the things that we try to do is we use, I was talking to Vaughn about this the other day, like, how do I approach um, problems? Me personally, Walker, I use what's known as the, the triangle approach to complexity. Okay. And the triangle approach, it's not called the triangle approach. I coined that term. It's called the three prong approach, but basically you take all tough concepts and you break it down into three elements, no matter what. And sometimes there can be a fourth element for the most part, you want to turn everything into a triangle. So let's talk about digital transformation. So when, when we shot the digital transformation video and I, and someone asks me the question, what is digital transformation? Okay. Well, I could write a big, long paragraph about digital transformation, right? I could write this big, long thing and I could reference Remy and I could reference OPC UA and I, I could reference, uh, the, you know, the Toyota production model and I could go into all this stuff. Or I could say, if I was going to explain digital transformation using only three points, what would those three points be? Okay. And so what I say is digital transformation is no more paper, take paper, you know, no more paper. Digital transformation is all about getting the information that people need in their hands when they need it, how they need it, or, and where they need it, right? Three thing. One, here's my point. My point is, is our focus in all of our content is all about taking anything that's hard, complex, and turning it into three points. If you watch the content that anyone else does, if you, especially the industrial, the big behemoths, all they are trying to do is sell you something. 
when they shoot that video, that video is not about informing. It is never about providing value for you. At most, it is about providing, creating the illusion of value so that you'll reach out to me so that I can then add you into my CRM and I can call you and try to sell you stuff. And I told him that I said, I said, literally this conversation, I said, the reason it resonates is because we are actually, our actual goal is to provide value. That's not your goal. Your goal is not to provide value. Your goal is to sell as much as you possibly can. Okay. Now you may say you're trying to provide value as a euphemism, but that isn't your actual goal. Is in, and that means if your goal is to sell as much as you possibly can, then it also follows that you will sell things to people that they don't need. And that is pervasive within industrial automation. Part of the reason we're doing this education and outreach is because we want informed engineers who don't fall for the bullshit that the big companies will give to you. It took me 10 years to figure out how Rockwell Automation does business. And now I can tell you in 10 minutes the things to look out for. That's why Rockwell don't like me because they, their tricks don't work on me. You know what I mean? It's and, 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 you know, I, I call them out. I mean that, and, but I mean the, the fact that I, I don't say things that other, you know, I say things other people think, you know, anyway, I, I got sidetracked there, but I wanted, I wanted to talk about that, that point, that conversation I had earlier in the week that, Hey guys, you know, you need to provide value to the community, like actual value. All right. All right, so let's get into the questions. I know we're you know 20 minutes in now before I'm answering my first question, but um, so this is going to be a combination of YouTube and Discord, and I'll I pasted in some of them. I'm going to go over to Discord and swap a couple over. But um, this Alan, um, how do you say that? Is it Eng? How do you say that? Eng? Alan Eng? Eng? I think it's Eng. Alan Eng. I bet you what it is. All right, quick question. He says, why don't you? This is uh, under the, is OPC the future of IoT? Uh, why don't you have kept server or whatever software you use as an OPC server, push data into a SQL server and have the MES ERP warehouse management take that data out of SQL? Since these systems do not have to be real time, SQL will be able to give them high volume timestamp data. Interesting video. I appreciate how you visualize IoT in a... Um, uh, user-friendly manner. Okay. It's pretty, pretty simple. The answer is, uh, you may do that. Okay. You may do that to solve a, a specific problem. But what, remember when we talk about OPC UA, we're talking about whether it's the future of IIoT, the industrial internet of things. And remember what is in the industrial internet of things, everything and everyone are plugged into the network, right? It, you know, it, everything is work producing and consuming data in real time. Um, what I'm saying is OPC UA by virtue of the, it's the way the standard's written and the architectures you have to implement using OPC, it doesn't scale for IIoT. One, you know, this is why it's really important people watch all the content. And when they go through the IIoT mini course, they watch it in order so that they understand some of the premises that we're saying. Like here is a basic premise in IIoT and industry 4.0. People have been hearing terms like IIoT, Industry 4.0, digital transformation, um, you know, um, digital twins, all that, all these buzzwords for the last decade, but it feels to them that they haven't seen any results from it. Okay, 
And the reality is, is that a lot in the reason they feel that way is because a lot of digital transformation projects fail. So we started talking about why is it they're failing? If, if, if people start saying, oh, I I've been hearing about this digital transformation shit for a decade, it's all just another buzzword, right? It's an, it's the new pink elephant everyone's bringing in, right? Um, well, the reason you think it's a buzzword is because you don't see a lot of um, success stories. The reason you don't see a lot of success stories is because a lot, digital transformation is not like doing SCADA. In SCADA, you get 90% success rate. You'd be lucky to, you'd be lucky if it were 30% success rate in digital transformation. It's not like, it's like one in 10. Why is it? Because everyone keeps making the same mistakes. What are the mistakes that they're making? They put in architectures. They do three things. They do the wrong, they take the wrong partners. They have the wrong strategy. They use the wrong technologies. And, and when they have the wrong strategy, that means they're not agile, right? It's, they're not agile. They're not using a unified namespace and a minimum technical requirements. So all the content that we've shot, all the stuff that we teach the, to the community is, is it's iterative. It's very important. You understand the premises that we're, we've laid out, you know, actually the community is laid out and we're just responding to them. This video is not OPC as shit. It's e OPC is not the future of IIoT. OPC UA has a very specific, has a, a future in industrial automation, but it's not as the backbone of the industrial internet of things. It is not. Why? Because it's not edge driven. It's not report by exception. It's not lightweight. It's not open architecture, completely open architecture. So the answer to his question, Alan's question, yes, you can do this. You could take, and by the way, you wouldn't push data into the SQL server from an OPC server unless you were using some kind of cyclical task that was running in your specific OPC server. But yeah, there are many examples of this, but um, I wouldn't do that. The way that I would architect it today is I would run that data through the unified namespace and have the database consume it from the unified namespace. Why? because that's data that some other application is going to need. And by the way, SQL Server doesn't scale. You, if you just use a time series database, that's SQL Server as your data lake, if you will, it's just this big behemoth with billions and billions and billions of records, it won't scale. You hit what we refer to as critical mass. You, there are lots and lots of digital transformation proof of concepts that have gone swimmingly, gone amazingly well. Digital transformation fails when you try to scale. And that's why architecting correctly when you're doing the proof of concept is so important. That's why we preach it all the time. If you don't live by these rules, you are going to hit critical mass and someone's going to go, well, why can't I get my data? Why do I have this outage? Why do I have this, you know, no bandwidth in, in, in this region of the world, whatever. Okay. Uh, Bjorn, I can't remember what question this was or what video, Zach, you could let me know, but Bjorn Isaac said, thank you very much for taking the time to create the videos and share your knowledge. Very good structure, easy to understand. Hope to see from you guys uh, an OEE video. This was on the Lightboard, why you need, or how OEE works, the Lightboard video. Okay. And does he want us to go into and do a... Um... I, I just wanted to put that in there to oh, respond to. to. We're, we need to create more OEE content, but I mean... We could, we could, if well, you wanted to ask, ask the, let's ask the community, you know, we're going to do an OEE series. What do you want to know? Give me, give me the, the three, break it into three questions you want me to answer 
when it comes to, to OEE or MES. Let's put them, you know, put them together. Uh, Bruce Levy, um, this was the IIoT thing. He said, can't we just use a Raspberry Pi with the appropriate sensor and then connect it to the cloud, i.e. IoT Hub or Greengrass? Is a knowledge of a PLC HMI necessary? All right, let me look and see what question, what video this was. Hey, when you do these screenshots, definitely, definitely, definitely need to know what video it is. All right, how to implement OEE in your manufacturing plan? The answer is absolutely not. You wouldn't be able to do that, Bjorn. Oh, no, hold on, uh, Bruce. Six-layer model of automation. Um, oh, the, this is the advanced video. Um, yeah, I mean, I use we use Raspberry Pis all the time. In fact, a really popular single-board computer that we've been using lately is the NVIDIA... Um, I'll put a link. We'll we'll add a link in the the long term video of this. But there's an in, there's a an Nvidia AI solution single board computer. It's like sixty bucks or something. Really good edge and network um, single board computer. Um, the answer is you can do what you're asking, Bruce. I mean, you can take a Raspberry Pi and and I would do that in a proof of concept and I would use it for. Um, and I would use it to co collect instrumentation data. What's important is where do you send that data from the Raspberry Pi? That's what's important. You know, if you want to use a Raspberry Pi that's got a Python program, you know, running in it, or um, you know, and and it and it's scanning to see the the uh, GPIO pins change at a certain rate. You know, if you want to write that automation in there to collect sensor data, you can, and you can send it to to IOT Hub or Greengrass. The problem is, is that what you're proposing is you're, you're approaching the problem as one part of one whole. That is, you know, you're trying to solve just a single problem and you're not asking yourself, how does the solution you're developing here fit into the overall architecture? That's the limitation of what you're asking. What we're saying is, is that, okay, let's start with our minimum technical requirements, okay? So you wanna use a Raspberry Pi with an appropriate sensor and you want to connect to IoT Hub or Greengrass. What I'm saying is you need to use edge-driven report by exception, lightweight open architecture technologies. We recommend building a unified namespace, single source of truth for all your data. You should build that on MQTT since you're going to use a Raspberry Pi, you know, run some Mosquito in there, import the Pothole library, bam. All right. The What we would suggest is that if you're going to stream sensor data, to Greengrass or the Azure IoT Hub, then there's, I assure you that Greengrass is, is not, well, Greengrass would be on the edge and you'd run a Lambda or something, but the, that's, not, that's not the only solution that cares about that sensor data. So what you wanna do is you wanna take those events and you wanna put those events in a place where other people can consume them, other consumers. When I say people, I mean nodes in the ecosystem. That could be people, it could be other applications. You wanna put those events and that in a specific structure for other nodes in the ecosystem to consume. Is knowledge of the PLC or HMI necessary to collect data? Of course not, it's not. You, you could put a Raspberry Pi with its own sensor. But what you don't wanna do is have 100,000 Raspberry Pis all over your enterprise with you know commercial, low-grade sensors collecting, you know, your data, it's, in, it's not manageable. You can do a proof of concept that way, but it's not going to scale. What we're teaching you is the, is the architecture, the technology to make it so that these projects can scale, right? 
Um, and, and, and what we're doing is we're creating a smartphone for manufacturing. Smart, a smartphone for a smart factory. That's what you're creating, okay? Um, all right, let me go back here. Hopefully that answered the question. Uh, Case Faye, sorry, you guys can't see this under the IoT rant. I get more awesome comments from that, but very good video. Our company's deploying SAP, which costs a lot of money and human resources. They still don't care about MES or IOT. I really want to show your video to the management team. Go ahead and do that. I would recommend. Um, I find it hard to believe that in this day and age, um, any, let me, let me make this statement. If you're an executive, okay. That is, if you're, let's say you're a general manager of a manufacturing facility. Um, you are a director of a business unit, um, or an EVP in charge of a business unit or you sit on the board of directors, okay? If you're in the manufacturing business, and this, this is a declarative statement, if you are in the manufacturing business and you don't care about, you don't think that a manufacturing execution system can provide you value, I want you to email me and let me know who you work for so that I can make sure that your company is not in my portfolio. That is, I don't own any stock in your company. Okay. I know that that would be insider training. I know it would be, but let me make something perfectly clear. If you are an executive in any of these groups, and I'm not picking on you, it's not your fault that you went to Wharton and, and at Wharton, no one taught you, you know, the importance of, you know, uh, you know, what happens on the plant floor. Okay. And it's not my fault. You don't listen to the operators. Um, and you don't listen to your supervisors because you think you're smarter than they are. You're not, by the way, the most important people in your organization work on the plant floor. Okay, let me say that again. You're blessed to be an executive. You are blessed to cash big checks. I'm an executive. I own many companies. I, 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 my, I make seven figures a year. I'm a very wealthy guy. I grew up very poor. I'm a very wealthy guy. And if I wanted to, I could be just like you and I could make three decisions a day and I could take all the credit, right? That's what executives do. Make three important decisions, take all the credit. But if you want the company that you're leading to remain in business, then what you have to do is understand that the future of manufacturing is all about enabling the people on the plant floor to make more efficient and effective decisions. IIoT and Industry 4.0 do that. Why? Because they take the data that you collect every day that you don't even do anything with, all these events that are happening, they put them in a place and convert it into information and give you a mechanism to take that information and put it back to a place for someone else to consume, right? I mean, it, it is literally, it is literally, uh, you know, taking candy from a baby once you have an IOT infrastructure. Okay. Um, if so, if you, whoever the case, whoever you work for, if they really don't care about MES, that is, they don't think it's a value. That's a huge problem. If they don't care about MES because they think they've already got a solution that does it, that's a different. That's a completely different ballgame. Um, but what what that would tell me is you're creating monoliths of data, data silos all over your organization, and you're not going to be sharing information between. Uh, let's go to Khalid. Thanks for the video. I'm looking for a controls engineer job in the automotive industry, and the other job I'm looking for is a controls design engineer for a system integration company. Can you? Please explain the major difference between the two. Good question. All right. So uh, controls engineer in automotive industry is going to be really one of two jobs. Okay. 
most people in the automotive industry, you may not know this in automotive, most like tier one automotive suppliers or the automotive manufacturers, they, they are also machine builders. In many cases, they're building the equipment that they use in the manufacturing processes. Now, what they may do is buy OEM equipment and modify it and add on additional features. So if you're, if you're a controls engineer in the automotive industry, you're going to be in one of two positions. Position A is going to be on the OEM side, the machine build side, which is really you're essentially a product engineer who is doing the controls packages for the equipment that your company builds. Okay. That's, that's job one. If, and if that's your role and you want to do industry 4.0, your job is to understand how does this piece of machinery that I'm designing and building the controls packages for, how does this fit into our overall digital strategy? How is this machine going to plug into our ecosystem? What is our ecosystem? What is our digital strategy? So that's job one. Job two is the people who maintain the controls systems. So if you're a controls engineer in automotive and you're not doing machine builds, you're not doing OEM, then what you're doing is you are maintaining and improving existing systems. So that means you're, you know, you're testing better sensors, you're replacing sensors, you're modifying PLC code, you're troubleshooting controls issues, um, you're building SCADA systems, plant level SCADA systems. You may be working on MES, a manufacturing execution system for that equipment. That's what that, that other, you know, the, the support role. What you'll see a lot of times is somebody will come in in the support role. You'll, you'll enter the automotive, the job as a controls engineer um, in a support role. And then you'll, you know, as you move up the ladder, you can move over to the OEM side, right? And then a controls design engineer for a system integration company, that, that is a broad area. Okay, so that could be designs like doing actual um, panel design, you know, working with uh, AutoCAD electrical, that kind of stuff. You could also be writing control theories for specific um, projects that, that's sequence of operations, functional specifications. And some systems integra in, uh, integrators will use their controls design engineers to be their actual integrators. Now, um, it depends on which integrator you're talking about here. If, if you're looking at like, say, Wonderlic Malik or, um, uh, you know, any of the CSE companies, like a controls design engineer is, is somebody who's spending time designing, you know, building PNID drawings and doing panel design and that kind of stuff. So, um, all right, cool. Now, Nicholas Navarro, hey, thanks for the great information. Can Tango's control open source solution be used to create the unified namespace? Thanks again and keep sharing videos. The answer is, so for those of you guys who don't know Tango controls, um, just go to, I think it's tango-controls.org or whatever. It's a open source, it's really like, it's really DevOps, you know, you know it's really a DevOps SCADA solution. Um, can it be the unified namespace? No, because it doesn't support the right technology. That doesn't mean that this isn't uh, a cool platform. I, I, we've, I've, we, I've stayed away from Tango controls primarily because open source is not the same as open architecture. And using open source solutions in industry, while I don't disagree with it on principle, it, 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 puts, a, it puts a hurdle in front of me that I, I can't necessarily, it, it may be difficult to jump, especially if I'm making an integral part of my automation stack. So 
Uh, but the answer is can no. You explain, it, can you explain why open, open source you would think twice about using it as an integral part of your automation stack? I, I, me personally, let's say I'm in charge. I'm the chief technical officer of a company. I don't have a problem using open source. Okay. As, as long as my licensing and support agreements were all enterprise. Okay. So I was using some type of commercial release of that open source software. And that's very common in the industry. You'll have, I was going to say, cause you're open sourcing UNS gateway. So but we'll also know. have, but we're going to have an enterprise class. So there are it, basically the difference between an open source solution and a open source solution with an enterprise option is that there are pieces in the enterprise option that are not open source. And those pieces in the enterprise option are that th that's the IP. That's the intellectual property that connects all the open source libraries together. Right. I haven't seen uh, if Tango Controls does that or anything like that. I have played, you know, you can go download the solution, but it's, it's really Tango Controls is really something where like, say you wanted to build your own SCADA system. Like I want to build a SCADA system, right? You could use Tango Controls to do it. Um, but no, it, it can't serve as a unified namespace. The platform itself can't. Um, I mean, you could connect a unified namespace to it because you can, you know, Tango supports, uh, you know, it's built on C, Python, and uh, I don't know if it's Java, or, but it's, it's C, Python. I think it might be Java, but the, um, you could use the Python, the Paho libraries in Python to connect to your unified namespace if you want to, if you're using MQTT. Uh, Paul Hain, have you ever worked or used Xscava Integrator X as a web skater? The answer is no. I hadn't even, until he pushed this, I'd never even heard of it. Um, uh, we will take a look at it though. Um, uh, Lamia, hey all, could you please help me find courses or YouTube videos on how to develop an MES? Thank you. Okay, so, so Michael's the one who answered this. He, Mike's one of our, um, he's the other solutions architect at Intellic. And, um, you know, Michael's a, you know, big MES guy. So he and I are the ones that do all the MES stuff. Is, this is a great answer. So Michael's answer is, this is a broad question. Can you answer either the following? What software do you plan on use to develop the MES in? What are the user and or functional requirements of the MES? Uh, question one, because that will point you to the software and rated technology stack to skill up on. Question two, because the specific requirements may direct you to a different solution out on the market or have you build your own. Enterprise MES rollout. Um, from a high level, Wikipedia gives you some examples of functionality. We'll, we released a video in 2019, Intellic did, um, that discusses how an enterprise MES rollout works. What I want to do, and it's a great answer on Michael's part. So what I want to do is I want to I go over MES real quick, just a couple of... Um, let me go here, let me go there, and let me go there. Uh, no, lied. There and I want to go to our presentation and slides. And I want to go to I was gonna say that that engineer looking to get into the automotive industry should reach out to Michael Dowdell. Yeah. Like connect connect with him on LinkedIn. Michael Dowdell is one of our members of the mastermind. Where's the workflow? Automotive guy. All right, there it is. Okay. All right, so manufacturing execution. Um, I want I want to go over this real quick. So manufacturing execution is really it really covers um, ERP. Okay. 
the manufacturing execution layer. It also includes components of SCADA and then PLC, HMI, and then warehouse management. So if you look at, when I say MES, when I say manufacturing execution, what I mean is how do I take, how do I convert a sale into finished goods? That's what manufacturing execution is. Okay. So if I go here, MES, MES equals sales to produced goods. So MES, when you when I say SCADA, when I say supervisory control and data acquisition, that that's a very very easy thing to quantify. When I say SCADA, what that means is I have supervisory control of my um, automation processes, my my menu, my uh, machines, and I have data acquisition where I'm acquiring data from my equipment. I visualize my processes and I can control them, and I can one of the big functions of SCADA is monitoring alarms. Right. So that's basically everything that SCADA is. It's not anything more than that. <laughs> and I was able to explain it to you in 15 seconds. MES is, you know, there are when what Michael was talking about in there is what are, what are the functionalities? What are the features? So uh, when we talk about um, here, here are all of the things that could be put into MES. So product codes, bill of materials, um, materials. Okay. And a material could be raw whip finished. Okay. So what does that mean? Um, you know, let's say I have a product code where I'm going to produce product code a, and that product code is going to be my Apple iPhone. The bill of materials is the list is a list of all the things in, um, it's a list of all the things that, that goes into this phone. Okay. Now it could be, it, it, it could, it may not be a list of the raw materials. It could be a list of just all of the sub assemblies that go into the last piece where we put the phone together. That's my bill of materials. And then I have a bill of materials for each of the sub assemblies. And the, and I get back to a sub assembly where my bill of materials is nothing but a bunch of raw materials, right? That's what bill of materials is. All the things I need to make something. Okay. Product codes can be, um, product codes are almost always the finished good. Not always. Some customers, for whatever reason, decide that they're going to have an unfinished good, a whip material, have its own product code. And the reason why is because they may produce that whipped, that material, they may produce that subassembly and sell it to somebody else before it becomes a finished good, right? They can become a uh, a, a supplier of another manufacturer, right? It's, you know, this is where the business, this is why MES is so complicated is because MES is all about taking the way the business is structured and, and, and being the tool that converts the way you do business into producing stuff. And then when you want to collect information, it's all about MES oftentimes in the old days was all about relaying that operational technology to the information technology through the MES system. But here, I'm just going to list off, you know, a bunch of the functionalities, um, work orders, schedules, um, recipes, uh, quality, um, uh, quality inspection plans, uh, SPC. So that's statistical process control, 
um, OEE, um, downtime, uh, production counts. Uh, what am I missing here? Um, schedules, recipes, quality. Uh, oh, CMMS. Um, so that's all your maintenance, managing your maintenance. That's part that can be part of the MES system. There are may, way more. I, there's a full list of them I make, make available. But when it comes to the MES question, hey, can you help me how to develop an MES? Well, the first, in order for me to teach you how to develop an MES system, the first thing I got to do is teach you how to architect one. You know, how do you, when somebody says, I want a manufacturing execution system, when they say that, and they come to you and they say, hey, you look smart. I want, it, I want you to build me a manufacturing execution system. And let's say you've never done it before, ever. Well, then you're going to Google it. What is a manufacturing execution system? And you're going to find a, a, bunch of, a bunch of bullshit online, right? So let's do that. Let's do uh, manufacturing uh, execution. I think Traxxas, Traxxas comes up first. Let's go to... All right, so let's look at what shows up here. This is all, yeah, this Capterra thing, I read that. This is all horseshit. They paid for that, you know. Um, there's no real uh, good information on manufacturing execution systems. So if you Googled it, you, would you wouldn't know what this is. So, and it's designed that way. It's designed so that you'll call one of these companies and they'll come in and try to sell you something, right? So let, but let's say you want to, you, you're asking, hey, I want to I develop an MES system. The first thing I got to do is teach you how to architect one. And the way you architect one is first figuring out how the business operates. So the first thing you want to know is what are all the capabilities of an MES system? And then find out how that organization is currently doing those things. How every company has product codes. They, they may call them SKU numbers, but you know, what are the SKUs? And you know, where are they managed? You, you know, most people be like, oh, they're managing the ERP system. And then you find out, well, yeah, they are, but only for the accountants and for the executives. We actually have another system that stores a completely different list of, of SKUs. And we have a spreadsheet that's a lookup table between the two. I mean, I've seen that a million times. Uh, bill of materials, most of the time, that, a lot of times that's in a spreadsheet. Um, raw whip finish work orders off, oftentimes are on paper. Schedules oftentimes are on paper. Recipes oftentimes are in the, the process engineer's office. Quality inspection plans are oftentimes in the quality engineer's office. Um, statistical process control is normally left to the OEM. If you're going to use control charts to handle your process, statistical process control is all about monitoring the process, applying the, the, the quality rules to certain data points, running them th th through certain rules like Nelson number three. And, in, in, and if I apply this data point through the Nelson three rule, which I think is, I think Nelson three, don't quote me, I'm not a quality guy. Sindrich can probably yell at me if I get it wrong. But I'm pretty sure Nelson number three is if my data point, um, six samples in a row, the, the, the value increases, that means I'm out of control based on Nelson three. You know, if, if, if I take a measurement, like a diameter measurement of a part, if it goes up, if it gets thicker six times in a row, then I'm out of control according to the Nelson three rule and syndrome, if I'm wrong, you know, throw a racer at me, but, um, you know, that's SPC OEE is, uh, you know, availability, quality performance downtime. Right. So MES is complicated. It's not an easy thing. Um, 
So to answer your question, there are no courses or YouTube videos that are going to be able to teach you how to use or how to develop an MES system. But you could be taught online or in a course on how to architect one. And then the, the development of an MES system is going to be a function of your technical capabilities, your knowledge of the software, that kind of stuff. And that's what Michael's saying there. Um, all right. Uh, Ready said, which version of Ignition 8 is recommended for step one mentorship? Um, so Maker, Standard, or Edge? The answer is you would be able to do... Um, You'll be able to do it on any of the three. I want to, the reason I put this here is because I wanted to highlight the differences between Ignition Maker Edition, Ignition Standard Edition, and Ignition Edge. Um, so what you need to know is that the installer for Ignition is the same for all three versions, okay? Um, what happens is, is when you go to install, it's going to ask you which version you want to install, but it's just one installer. Maker Edition is, is a full-blown Ignition standard minus the vision module. So you can't, there's no, the, the, the whole goal, inductive automation is going to eventually get rid of vision, which is built on Java swing. And my guess is they're probably tired of paying that licensing. And since they've built, since they, I, you know, since they've built perspective, you know, from the ground up for the most part, I doubt they're not paying a lot of licensing costs for what they've got in perspective. So and, and they're paying licensing for what they've got in, in um, Vision because it's Java Swing. Um, so every year they've got to pay, they've got to pay license fees to um, uh, the vendors. Um, they're clearly moving away from Vision. I mean, within, I, you know, maybe in five years they deprecate it. I don't know when it's going to be. No one will really give me that answer, but they're definitely going to get rid of it. Okay. So Ignition Maker Edition is, is really designed to get into the hands of students. It's a full-blown ignition in, install, that it, it, except it doesn't have the vision module in it, okay? Um, ignition standard is the, the ignition that everyone knows. Ignition edge is a stripped-down version of the full ignition standard. Here's the difference. Ignition edge does not have SQL bridge. That is, it doesn't connect to databases. And, it, it, and out of the box, it has a limited number of clients. I think it's one, maybe two clients. Can, launch, can be running concurrently from an Ignition Edge implementation. But under the hood, the platform's the same for all three. So if you look, one of the modules is called Ignition Platform. That's like your tags, you know, tags and all that kind of stuff. There, it's exactly the same for all three of them. Um, my recommendation is to use standard. Okay, uh, I wanna get into a couple of comments, uh, conversations. Uh, RiRi44 said another name for the UNS could be Digital Backbone. The description of it by Sistema, which is an SAP partner, is based on principles that are clearly in my videos. Um, seems big IT companies are perfectly aware of what needs to be done. Correct. Uh, the difference is what they're aware of what needs to be done in terms of a digital twin or having a unified namespace. What they don't know is um, they don't understand the differences between the the event the event engines for um, sensor data on the plant floor. And they also don't have a strategy. So that is, you know, everyone thinks when you say PLC, they think every PLC is basically the same. And what they don't understand is that, you know, depending upon which flavor of PLC you're talking to, the, the, the way that you retrieve that information is going to be different. The speed at which the PLC operates. So how, what's the resolution of the data, the maximum resolution you could get. All of that varies. IT people don't understand any of that stuff. They don't know any of it. 
Um, they also don't understand that if I give the same sequence of operations and control theory to 10 different PLC programmers, I'm going to get 10 completely different programs that all do the exact same thing. And let's say I wanted to build one application that worked with all 10 of that exact, that program does exactly the same thing. Okay. So I got 10 programs that 10 different people wrote. They use the same sequence of operations. They use the same control theory. They wrote 10 completely different programs, different tag naming standards. The, the, you know, even the logic is different. Um, they, you know, some people may have used um, cyclic subroutines. Some may have not. Um, some may have used AOIs. Some may have not. Some may have used UDTs. Some may have not. So integrating with each of those, those PLC programs that all do exactly the same thing, by the way, the output, the control output is exactly the same, is, would be 10 completely different integrations. And IT people do not know that. When you tell them that, they roll their eyes and they go, well, why don't you write standards for how they write their PLC code? And I said, great, that's an awesome job. If you do that, you can make a million dollars a year. And there are standards out there, but there are limitations to the standards and that's the reason people don't use them. Um, and then Lake commented and said, there's no mention of how it should be done though. That's exactly the point. Uh, Lake asked, uh, can someone share some thoughts on where to nest nodes as ERP, MES, CMMS, and a unified namespace at what level of the spark plug topic? Um, all right, this is a good question. The answer is, um, it depends. If, if the, ER, the ERP specific data, let's use ERP specifically. The ERP application specific data is going to be, um, it is going to be its own root topic, okay? Um, or it won't be a root topic. It'll be the, it'll be a, um, child topic uh, underneath the root. Um, and all of the ERP, all the information about that ERP, which would be like, what ERP am I using? What version, all that kind of stuff. That's going to be in, in its own piece of the namespace, but information from that ERP that applies to another, um, asset in the namespace. So say specifically a machine, like the machine ID that's going to be under nested underneath the machine. And it may be in a folder called ERP or, or CMMS. So it's it, it, the, the piece of data that you're sending is going to vary. Now, one of the things that we always do is let's say I'm taking like an in for EAM CMMS and I want to, and I want to take the, the full namespace of that in for CMMS and I move it into my IOT platform. So I publish it into my namespace where I've got a, a root called CMMS. And then underneath it would be like in for EAM instance, whatever, you know, the device ID and then the full namespace underneath it. And then what I could do is I, in my IOT platform, I could move, you know, I could just use references to pull the data out into the, into the unified namespace, which is where all our visualizations come from. So the answer is it varies like, um, Vikram, uh, I want to just go through this, this thread real quick. Uh, how, where are we? We're actually one hour in to when we went live, Zach, right? Yeah. Hey Vaughn, can you check my calendar real quick? Am I missing anything? I know I'm 20 minutes late. Uh, no, we have a prep here in eight minutes. Okay. All right. Um, all right, Vikram. Hello friends. I'm from automation and controls background. I'm very interested in IOT and don't have any experience. Please suggest your ideas on how to start from a beginner. Oh, um, the answer is go directly to, I'd start with do the IOT mini course first. 
Um, I mean, really go to our content. Actually, it'd be a great, you know, we should make a playlist called for beginners, IIoT for beginners. Then it should be the IIoT mini course. Like how does it apply to in industry? And then, you know, that, that little, you know, the project I did for factory studio where I'm just dabbling around, um, the, the one that I did with the raspberry Pi, you know, that would be helpful. Node red is a very good suggestion though. Um, G man. He said, might I recommend Raspberry Pi and Node-RED? Um, use Node-RED to pull your hardware over Modbus OPC. Um, it's got dashboard GUI, yep. Um, I'd also recommend um, um, InfluxDB. It's got also the, you know, instead of, you just have Raspberry Pi and Node-RED publish your data to Influx. Um, Vikram, if you want to start from a system that already has an operating system, Raspberry Pi is the way to go. You can run embedded Linux, yep. Um, saves many trouble writing preferable drivers. Okay. Uh, I wanted to talk about Hess here real quick. And I, I think I only have two more questions after this. Uh, Denton said, Hey, Walker referencing 3826. Could you please discuss or point us to the appropriate hardware examples that would satisfy your specs for specialized machine that has enough cores to handle digital factory computational throughput. Thanks so much. All right. The reason I put this in here, um, there was a question uh, I was talking about in the video. I'm talking about how, you know, there are people who are, who want to do process control through just software. So that is take, take what you do inside of a PLC, right? And then just in, and instead of doing that, buy one of these, you know, off the shelf IO modules and connect that over ethernet to a server and have my logic running in the server and controlling my process from the server. Okay. That's a horrible idea. All right. I mean, people try to do this in ignition too. They'll try, they'll try to, they'll use sequential function charts to do, instead of doing business logic, which is what SFCs are designed for, they are, they're used, trying to do process control. There's two different types of logic. Well, there's more than two, but there's two that matter. You've got, you've got process logic that runs out on the edge and it runs your machines. Okay. It, it makes the machine do what's in the control theory. Okay. So when I push that's your this industry 3.0 stuff, correct. Th that's your process control logic. That stuff belongs inside of a PLC and inside of an embedded controller, a specialized device that is designed to do machine logic. Okay. It does not belong anywhere, but those devices. Now, when people say, well, well, why, what, why don't I just put it in my server? The answer is, um, 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 there's a million reasons why, but the biggest one is in, in, in their efficiency, there's efficiency requirements, you know, that, you know, Hey, I, we want that, that CPU to, or we want a, our program to scan at a specific rate so we can pick up those transitions, all that kind of stuff. But the biggest reason is, is that you do not want a program running. Um, that controls a machine that could kill people. Okay. That has, has process checks built into it. Instrumentation checks built into it that could kill human beings. Okay. That could cause environmental events that could cause fires that could, you know, I mean, I've seen some crazy stuff in my days in the old relay logic days where, you know, people use pneumatic timers to do like soft starts on conveyor systems. And I'm showing my age here, but, um, you know, PLCs make it so that if a, if the, if that pneumatic timer goes bad and that timer stays stuck in, so it doesn't go in and it keeps running 
all the current through the resistors on the soft start before it gets to the motor and it never cuts back over. Um, that causes a fire and kills people. <laughs> I mean, it could kill people, you know, basically those resistors get, you know, they melt the insulation and they catch everything on fire. If you don't, if that timer doesn't transition off. Okay. That's just one of a gazillion examples I can give to you in controls where the PLC is specifically designed to, to give you the ability. It's dedicated logic, dedicated threads that are where its only job is to monitor the inputs and outputs and, and apply the logic as it's written. Okay. And they are designed that once you deploy that PLC code, it is, it's either going to run exactly the way you designed it, or it's not going to run at all. That's how PLCs are designed. That's how embedded controllers are designed. It's going to run exactly the way it's designed, or it's not going to run at all. Okay. You, if you try to put process control logic on a, my, say my Mac here, and I have it running in a Python program, my Mac, I'm going to push updates to my Mac. It, some of these updates are going to happen without me even knowing. I may get, um, I may open the wrong email. Um, I could, I may delete a dependency that my, the program that I'm writing needs. So, you know, you, there needs to be an air gap between machine control and business logic. And so my, what I was talking about here is, hey, listen, as innovative as I am, even I'm not stupid enough to think that we should be doing our process control inside of, you know, on servers and on desktops and that kind of stuff. It needs to be run, that, that logic, that, that code needs to be running in PLCs. Um, all right, uh, I wanna get to, there were two other ones, guys. The one in the edge. Is that edge? Uh, I wish I asked to do this because I was sure. All right, I want to answer Dundo's question. So Dundo asked on um, two days ago, what does report by exception mean for analog measurements? Um, so for discrete integer values, uh, defining a state of alarm zero or one or state of value or valve, for example, zero, one, two, blah, blah, blah. It's clear you publish data only after change. But he's saying for analog data measurements, usually you have jitter. So that would mean sending data all the time, even if the change is very small. Should one implement a dead band on a smart sensor or in a PLC if dumb sensors are used to filter out the jitter and transmit? The answer is yes. The actually, the way to do this, it's already built into the MQTT spec. And that is um, when you set up your connection from your client. So when I set my payload connection, so um, I can, I can, on that connection, especially, um, th and this is a built into Sparkplug B and it's also in three, one, four, and five, you'd say, what is the highest frequency at which you want to send your updates? So let's say I, you know, I have an analog. What he's talking about is in floating measurements, you're always seeing the, the decimal points floating, they're moving, right? So do you send all those? The answer is no. What you do is the dead band is part of the MQTT connection between the client and the broker. And we, I generally use one second. So by default, I'm using one second. And what that means is, let's say that I, my connection is monitoring, my transmitter is monitoring five data points. Four of them are Booleans and one of them is a floating point. Basically what'll happen is, is every one second, it, it, the, the transmitter is gonna pick up every change, but it's only gonna send the last change at the one second transition. 
So the floating point will float. Blah, 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 blah. And then whatever its value was at the last moment, it's going to send it. Okay. Now Denton comes in and he, he brings it, he brings up another really good point, which is there are aggregation methods we can apply. I'm not going to get into the, the, you know, the, the, the power user stuff, but there are, you can actually apply aggregation methods to those changes that happened over that one second or two second. Okay. And, but, um, and then, and then send an aggregated value for that, that floating point at the end of the, at the end of the, the value. But, uh, Denton, Denton points out, or gives you an example of a good piece of code, the whole deal. So, um, it's a, it's a good question. The answer is there is a dead band built in and that's exactly what you should do. What's the other one? It's in questions under mentorship. Oh, I wanted to go over this. This isn't even me answering. I wanted to highlight something. Um, so Den said, there's a saying in law school that if you spend enough time in the law library, you'll find yourself right up uh, your own butt. Uh, can we be given an ignition development lab as a group to utilize and practice all the things we're learning to develop an Intellix style 4.0 solution? It's been all theory and no application so far. I don't feel I can apply it in a useful way at this time, or is application simply my problem to deal with as I see fit? This was law school. I'd be asking for more moot court exercises to practice my lawyering skills. Can we get practical labs to practice our integrator skills as we go? The answer is you're getting, you're getting that in, um, you know, in the practical part of the reason that the, the part of what we're baking into step two is in this, this is a very common piece of feedback we got. We are, you will be doing practical work all throughout step two. So instead of at the end, applying everything that you learned, you're going to be applying it as you go through step two. I think what Denton is asking is something even higher level than that, which is, you know, can we have standalone practicals that we can give to people to apply? And I, I like that idea. Uh, John said another approach might be that a study group like ours gets on a Zoom call and 